Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. Biden and Z summit together. Mike Johnson pulls a Kevin McCarthy and the kids discover Osama bin Laden. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brandon Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Tommy John and Made in Cookware. More about both of them. In due course, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we had this pull aside that kind of became a, a mini summit between Biden and Z. And Biden said he mentioned the things you'd want him to mention about human rights and and Taiwan, but the uh, statement from Biden on Taiwan was relatively muted, especially compared to his serial statements that were going to defend Taiwan that, of course, have always been walked back. But he left out some of the the pro-Taiwan wrote material you usually hear from from a, a president. I don't understand the details of this. Supposedly, we got assurances. We got assurances from China on fentanyl, although we've had assurances before, and they're setting up a military uh, direct connection, a direct line, which is a good thing to have. But my understanding, actually, in prior crises, the Chinese never pick up when, when you call. So like after we bombed their embassy in Belgrade, no one picked up. And when they uh, took our surveillance plane down, they never picked up. So it's not clear what exactly was accomplished here, but what's your take on it? You know, it was a mixed bag. I think I think the administration had been signaling for a long time, for over a year now, Anthony Blinken has been signaling that relations with China were running away and running too hot, running too negative for the administration's comfort. And they wanted to ratchet down the pressure. Now, they've kept up, to be totally honest, I mean, the Biden administration has kept up and increased economic sanctions on on China, on uh, tariffs, putting more pressure on them with the CHIPS Act, you know, than even the, the Trump administration did. And this was, you know, it was interesting. Biden got these little promises you mentioned on fentanyl. But I think the big thing Z got was 
to stand in front of American business leaders again and get, you know, two or three standing ovations, China's very worried that about Western investment is no longer coming into China in the same way it did uh, even five years ago. It's now flowing more and more into places like Vietnam, Thailand, and even into the United States. I mean, we're seeing massive investments in industrial capacity in the United States. And I think that's got China very nervous. I mean, we are in, um, Mal Ferguson called it, uh, we are, with China, we are in mutually assured financial destruction. Our our economies are just so tied closely together that um, I think Z is very worried about uh, what happens if China can't continue to grow and can't continue to raise living standards. So it, it, it was an interesting meeting. I mean, I, I actually think one of the weirdest things about the meeting was the way California and San Francisco was able to clean itself up in advance of this. It was kind of totally shameful. People were saying as the meeting was leading up, why are you having it in San Francisco when you have all these, you know, embarrassing homeless encampments everywhere, crime spiraling out of control. I mean, human feces in the street. And then suddenly we showed <laughs> we can solve all these problems instantly when we want to look good for the Chinese. Um, yeah, that phenomenon is very, very third world or very dictatorial. You know, you can clean up the, the streets when you have to, but otherwise... Yeah, you know. I mean, it's sort of like reminding me of like Nicaragua or something. Um, but mm-hmm. any, anyway, I think it was, you know, it's impossible to judge whether Biden got a, a big win out of this. But I, I do think the administration achieved, you know, this de-escalation of tensions because they don't want to be focusing on Ukraine, the Middle East and China all at once. I think the bandwidth is limited. Yeah. So Maddie, a, a China hand I was talking to prior to the show was making the same point. MBD was there about the the e- economic element of this. China's economy is not doing well. And this guy was making the case to me that he doesn't think Xi would have shown up at all if it weren't for the opportunity to meet with U.S. business leaders. And there have been a lot of people pulling out in a way that would have been unimaginable from the perspective of, you know, four or five years ago when Trump and other people started talking about this. It was like that be too disruptive to have this decoupling is never going to happen. But it's happening. Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary said not too long ago that companies are complaining to her that China has become uninvestable. Yeah. I mean, definitely the way the Chinese economy is, is that they need foreign investment to help relieve their excessive debt. And they ideally need to soften some of these economic restrictions and and sanctions with the US. So that's obviously their motivation coming up. To go back to something Michael was saying about the cleaning up of the streets of San Francisco. I kind of think this is a pretty apt symbol for for the diplomacy between the US and China and more generally, you know, on on the surface you can you can make it look presentable, but the the reality is rather less uh, sanitary. You know, we start yesterday Biden walked out of his four-hour meeting and and said that she the the discussions with she had been constructive and productive, but by the end of the night 
he had called him a dictator, which I, I think d- didn't go down well with, with some of his staff. Obviously, he, he did that last time he did Anthony that Anthony Blinken June. physically uh, recoiled when he said it, which, yeah. which I actually... <laughs> that, that video is so incredible. I loved it. I think Biden was yeah. correct, but I do understand the diplomatic element. Anyway. Yes, yes. It's a, the kind of thing you, you, you're supposed to say behind their back. Well, at, at least not when he's on the, the stage with you. But last time he did this in June, he, uh, Be- Beijing obviously called the remark provocative. So, I mean, what's in it for the US? I mean, obviously, their their key priorities is avoiding a hot Taiwan crisis. Uh, they already have enough to worry about with, with Russia and Europe and Hamas and Iran in the Middle East. But really, I mean, that there, there's no there's no assurances that she could should get could give that would be believed on that. I mean, he, he as we noted in our editorial, he, he lied to Obama when he promised that China wouldn't militarize the South China Sea. He obviously cannot uh, be trusted. But having said that, there were some sort of marginal gains with this this effort to to address fentanyl trafficking with China uh, from China, uh, which obviously uh, China stopped in, in retaliation for Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And then, you know, conversations about artificial intelligence. And I think the, the big one was reopening communication between the US and China Chinese military through these kind of high-level talks. That's important uh, for ongoing diplomacy. But otherwise, um, yeah, I'm not, not sure how much good it really, really did. Yeah, so Charlie, I take Maddie's point, the Chinese are always lying through their teeth. But I think on Taiwan it's it's more we should believe what they're saying right so when they say oh we we want peace we want peace but this will be resolved you know and taiwan is part of china and this will inevitably be resolved you got to believe them and and what that means is is they will at some point go and and try to take it back sure sounds like that i think that the backdrop of all this is more akin to the way that the American economy became more free market in the 1970s than the way we will likely fix our entitlement crisis. So what I mean by that is that if you read the cliff notes of late 19th century American history, we were in a malaise, we had high inflation, we had high interest rates, people were exhausted, The unions were too strong. And Ronald Reagan came in with a Superman outfit and fixed it. Whereas actually, although Reagan did a great deal of good, if you look at the last few years of the Carter administration, you you see a shift in thinking. You see deregulation of the airlines. You see a recognition that there needs to be change. I think that's where we are with China. I think that the Biden administration and Washington in general has acknowledged that we have a problem with China, that they do present a threat to Taiwan, that our economic interdependence has not worked out in the way that we thought it would. But obviously, you can't just turn that around in 10 minutes. And so you have this really strange situation in which we have to be nice to them, we have to invite Xi over, Xi wants to talk to various business leaders. But both parties are coming to realize that the country is a threat. And I suspect that in 2025 years, when we look back on what happened next, we will start to see this era, even under a democratic administration, which has been less openly hostile toward China than Republicans have recently, as a turning point. Hopefully, the Chinese are expressing a desire there 
to take over Taiwan that is not backed by some secret plan in a safe somewhere in Beijing that says 2027 on it, which I think would throw all of this really into chaos. But I watched this visit and it struck me that this was the beginning of change that both sides know is coming, but that neither is quite going to express out loud until it's time to pull the plug. MBD, extra question to you. Let's double barrel this thing. If you were president of the United States and China moved against Taiwan, would you defend Taiwan militarily? Yes or no? And if China moves against Taiwan militarily, whoever the president of the United States is at the time, not you, presumably, will actually defend Taiwan. Yes or no? Ever since I read Bridge Colby's Strategy of Denial, I've been agonizing over this question because the way he presents the case for defending Taiwan, it actually makes it sound like a really close-run thing. And I I believe in home field advantage. And, you know, although Taiwan has a very treacherous coastline, it's it's just difficult. It, it it will be difficult for the U.S. to defend without a stronger Pacific Navy, a much stronger one than we have now. Uh, and I think the defensible lines are really more South Korea and Japan, not Taiwan. So I, I think I would be inclined not to defend it if I were president. You know, I would give it intelligence support, uh, maybe some more, some more weapons leading up so that it could put up a stout defense itself. But I do think the U.S. president will feel the need to, to defend it, anyone that we're likely to have. So, Maddie, we have a no and a yes from MBD. Where are you? So I really do not feel qualified to answer the first question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it never stops any of us, Maddie. <laughs> I know. I'm, just, I'm going to do a hard pass on that. But the I, I think ultimately it sort of depends how some of these other foreign interventions or, or these foreign situations are going in the Middle East and in Ukraine. But I, I would incline towards yes, I think the, the next president or, you know, I think they, they will act. All right. So we got a, a pass and a, a yes from Maddie Choi. So, so far we have yeses that the U.S. would defend Taiwan. I think the answer is yes. And the reason that I think the answer is yes is that everyone I've ever spoken to about the practical manner in which China would have to invade Taiwan suggests to me that Americans would die quite quickly, and maybe a lot of them. And if that happened... You mean because they'd hit Guam and... They'd hit Guam. Okinawa. And there are Taiwanese... um, There are Americans in Taiwan. And the most likely, I mean, it's not easy, right? It's not easy for China to invade Taiwan. It's not a particularly optimized target for what would be an amphibious invasion. And, and, and what and what would President Cook do? Well, I think that I would be listening, if I were president, to the clamors of an American public that would be not only worried that China had invaded Taiwan, but a lot of Americans had died. And I think at that point, America gets involved. I think it's very difficult. You really, at that point, have to either say, 
well, we're going to sail away from the area completely so that no one else gets hurt and leave those Americans completely unavenged, or you have to get involved. And even if you get involved in a limited way, that escalates because you're suddenly fighting Chinese forces. So I, I don't think that, from what I understand, and I'm no, by no means an expert on this, but from what I understand, uh, th- there is really no way for China to do this that wouldn't lead to the destruction of American assets and probably American citizens. And if that happened, I just think that the, the, the logic would unfold of its own volition. Mm-hmm. So I'm with MBD. I, I, I'm, I, I'm really torn on this, but I'm inclined towards a no and what I would do, but it may become unavoidable. And if they they hit hit our military facilities, obviously, in a preemptive manner, it becomes unavoidable. But th- this this would be a, a very dangerous war, a, a, a very dangerous war, and one that we would not be guaranteed to win. Now, if China took Taiwan, you know, it's a, it's a big blow to our uh, prestige and alliances and all the rest of it. I just, the, the risk of the conflict uh, make, make, tips me towards no, if it is, is avoidable. But do I think a U.S. president will defend Taiwan? Yes, I do. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Tommy John Underwear. Ever wonder why some gifts are loved year-round and some are banished to the closet forever? Is because only a few gifts make your loved ones look and feel amazing every time they wear them. That's the timeless style and comfort of Tommy John. When you give Tommy John, your loved ones are that much more comfortable so they can do everything better. This Black Friday, why not give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list, including yourself, with new Tommy John underwear, loungewear, and pajamas. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, Giving Tommy John is a holiday tradition. 90%, 97, excuse me, not 90, 97% of women and men love getting the gift of Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. One Tommy John fanatic raves. Fantastic Christmas gift that went so right. She loves the pajamas and everything's covered by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee shop tommy john's amazing black friday sale going on right now save 30 percent site-wide at tommyjohn.com slash editors that's 30 percent off everything for a limited time at tommyjohn.com slash editors tommyjohn.com slash editors please check it out and see the site for details so maddie kearns when we left the house they had elected a new speaker because Kevin McCarthy had gone to Democrats to pass a temporary patch, so-called continuing resolution, that he couldn't just pass with Republican votes. And this was a horrible betrayal of all that is good and true. And McCarthy was unceremoniously dumped as Speaker on the House floor, leading to weeks of chaos and the ascension of a much better speaker who would never do such a thing, uh, named Mega Mike, Mike Johnson. And lo and behold, up against the, the new deadline, the McCarthy measure had an expiration date of 45 days, proposed a so-called laddered CR. These things get very convoluted, but part of the appropriations bills have one deadline and then uh, another portion of them have another deadline. This is supposed to allow the House the time to pass individual appropriations bills, which it absolutely should do. The right flank is absolutely right about that. 
but there are conservatives who are unhappy with it. So it passes the House uh, and the Senate with Democratic votes in the exact same fashion as happened with Kevin McCarthy. What do you make of it? Yeah, so as you've rightly said, there's no meaningful difference between what Mike Johnson has succeeded in doing and what Kevin McCarthy was attempting to do. It obviously is a, a very small victory, I think, for, for fiscal conservatives, given that the spending will, will no longer expire at the end of the year and require this great Christmas omnibus package, which has everything but the, the kitchen sink in it, at a time when people are unable or, or unwilling to, to pay very close attention. I mean, Mike Johnson really has the exact same set of problems that McCarthy had. It's the art of the pos- possible with this. Uh, he, he needed Democratic votes to to get this through, and that having Democratic votes obviously moves the bill to the left. The, the package didn't have conservative priorities like spending cuts or policy riders. Um, but it's just, what what is the alternative at, at this point? I mean, he could have tried a re- Republican-only bill with with cuts that would keep the people like Mike Gates, Matt Gates happy, but um, they don't even necessarily support that. So, um, yeah, I mean this this is this is fine for now. I think people are too exhausted or just realise that it would wouldn't look good. The optics of it wouldn't look good if they challenged him right now. But uh, if if they were at all sincere in in why they they wanted to get rid of McCarthy, then. Um, they would, they would uh, get rid of or try to get rid of Mike Johnson. And uh, this doesn't seem like a, a long-term sustainable approach. Yeah, so Charlie, the, the, the one perspective that maybe makes it make sense what happened to McCarthy is this, this a long time ago, a, a journalist compared to me being an editor of, of a publication uh, to like uh, being a coal miner back in the day. And probably they had these like little indicators or badges you'd wear to to show whether you've been exposed to to too much uh, toxic chemicals or air or whatever da- down under you know and and at, the more you're down there it would slowly build up so that this guy was saying you know they're going to be diplomatic crises and this writer's going to be upset about this and this bad thing's going to happen and it slowly it slowly adds up till you reach a tipping point and you just can't you can't do it anymore so that happened with McCarthy just in, in terms of the number of people who either just didn't trust him or didn't like him, so his indicator got over the got over the top, and and he he ended up getting dumped. But substantively, there's there's yeah. there's not going to be a difference between the the McCarthy and and the Johnson speakership as a as a practical matter. Yeah, so I feel like I am boring our listeners when this topic comes up by saying the same thing every time. But that is because the same thing is true every time. The people who got rid of Kevin McCarthy did not make the case that you just made. They did not say, you know what, we are a fractious bunch, we have a small majority, we're frustrated by this, and we have just had enough of Kevin McCarthy. He has been in the room too many times, he's been the architect of our anger on too many occasions, so he's going to go. We have to get rid of him, just because I can't bear to look at him anymore, and then we'll put someone else in, but we accept all of the same environmental problems will be there. That's not the case. Had they said that, I still think it would have been relatively pointless, but I could have at least comprehended it. But they didn't say that. What they said was, McCarthy has to go because he's a rhino squish who's doing the wrong things. He's yielding the wrong outcomes. And he wasn't. What was yielding the wrong outcomes was the fact that Republicans don't have much power because they haven't won many elections recently. And that is just as true for Mike Johnson as it is for Kevin McCarthy. 
For years, Republicans have struggled with this concept. The idea, over and over again, in the mid-2010s, was that the only reason the Republicans couldn't repeal Obamacare without the White House or before 2014, the Senate, was because they didn't want to. Because they wouldn't stand and fight because the wrong people had their face in the papers. It's just nonsense. They couldn't get rid of Obamacare even when they had unified government. But they certainly couldn't get rid of Obamacare when Obama, the guy after whom it was named, was president, and when the Democratic Senate that had passed it was still in place. So yeah, Mike Johnson's going to suffer through exactly the same slings and arrows because those slings and arrows haven't stopped being fired. They're being fired because Republicans have a tiny majority in the House of Representatives and nothing else besides, not even the Senate. I get it. If you want to get rid of Kevin McCarthy on the rationale you just laid out, fine. If it becomes intolerable after a while to push all of your party business through one guy you don't even like and you just need a fresh set of trousers in the chair, then okay. But that's not the argument that was made. And I think people are therefore going to be disappointed because they're seeing the same outcome under Mike Johnson as they would have under Kevin McCarthy for exactly the same reasons. MBD? I mean, everything Maddie and Charlie said is correct. Gates obviously gave, you know, varying reasons. You know, one reason was, oh, that McCarthy worked with Democrats and shouldn't have done that. But he gave other other reasons, too, about, you know, McCarthy breaking promises. Many of them nobody could have kept about reading bills. And then occasionally he hinted that there another reason was that, well, you could we could get someone more conservative than McCarthy. And that's the only, you know, scale on which you could say Mike Johnson rates as an improvement on McCarthy from the Gates perspective. He is more conservative than McCarthy. He kind of smooths it over with the rest of the conference by being, you know, gentle and rhetorically a little bit more restrained than other MAGA Republicans. But that's it. I mean, I, I, I do think it was a good thing for the conference that Johnson got this done and got it done quickly and got it done with a minimum of drama because I think the internal drama has hurt Republicans. I think it's it's hurting them in the polls. I think it hurt them in the elections a little over a week ago. So, you know. Yeah, I was, I was talking to a, a highly placed Virginia Democrat in a green room, MBD, la- last weekend. And I thought of you because you had made the point offline. Or, no, I think maybe you actually said it in the podcast that the, the, ha- the dysfunction in the House played a role in the disappointing result in Virginia. And, and this, this guy thought that was absolutely true because he thought it, it made the point that you know, no matter how responsible they sound now or reasonable they sound now, what's going to happen when you actually give them the majority? Well, you see what, what's happening in the House. So he, he, he think that, that that at least played some role. And and the outcome, yeah. Region, yeah. And I, I, I think I, you know, I was fine with Kevin McCarthy. I thought he was he was doing better than I expected him to do, given the narrowness of the majority and the you know divisions within it. I'm saying I, I feel the same way about Mike Johnson so far too. I think he's doing a better than expected job. It's a difficult job. I mean, there's there's a reason that you know 
people have been walking away from this job to do marijuana lobbying or to retire and spend more time with their family or go to a think tank. Or just do marijuana given the stress involved. Right. <laughs> um, you know, this is, a, this is a tough job. You know, the Republican House is, is a, you know, sometimes motley, restive, and yes, like populist kind of uh, crew. So it, they're very difficult to manage. And, you know, Johnson's going to have his... Yeah, there's also a huge, huge element to the job that's not visible to us. It's fundraising and all of that, where uh, McCarthy really excelled. MBD, let's stick with you again for the exit question. Matt Gates is the future of Republican politics or an outlier? The future. I mean, if, if he keeps staying in office, there are, you know... We've seen this kind of upward bidding on the politics of arson in the Republican Party, you know, since Ted Cruz got in the Senate, maybe even before then. So I think it's still an upward rising trend. We'll see more of them. Maddie, future or outlier? I, I, I want to say outlier, so I'm going to say outlier. <laughs> <laughs> a, a hopeful outlier from Maddie Kearns. Charlie? Well, I think he's an outlier. If he's not, of course, it will work out for him because he'll be the only elected Republican left and therefore will indeed be the future of Republican politics. So it's it's both. There are going to be more Republican politicians like this, but there's a, a limit to this phenomenon because it really requires uh, safe districts. But I, I shouldn't say that because some, some people act like this from unsafe districts. You know, Lauren Boebert had a very narrow victory, but that's not going to stop her from being Lauren Boebert. Still, there, there's some limit on this phenomenon, although it will uh, uh, continue to to rise for the time being. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Made in Cookware. Made in has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things. They can feel the difference when using made in products, and they can taste a difference in their cooking, born from a 100-year old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. Made In works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Top professional chefs use Made In, including Tom Clickio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Atkins, Stephanie Izzard, and many, many more. Made In's award-winning nonstick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade nonstick coating. Made In's stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Made In's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame. Plus, Made In has an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more. We found all this to be emphatically true in the Lowry Kitchen. Our made-in pans are great to handle. They cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So made-in cookware gets our highest recommendation, especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, Editor's listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors, please check it out. And I assure you, you will not disappoint. Uh, you will not be disappointed. This is really great stuff that you'll be happy to have on your stove. So Charlie, we got a great uh, TikTok trend going the last couple of days. The Guardian had posted, you know, as, as many outlets had, Osama bin, bin Laden's 
letter to America in the weeks after September 11th, some moron uh, discovered this letter in the wake of the October 7th attack and the debate over U.S. foreign policy and Israel and the West generally and found it revelatory. And this became a trend on TikTok where, where you have these moronic kids. They're like, my mind, I just, guys, I, you, you got you to go, go read the letter. Just, just come back and let me know if you're experiencing the same existential crisis I, I am right now. My, my whole worldview has just changed in five minutes of reading this letter. And the, the letter does, as you pointed out in a post, it does have a lot of, uh, repeats back a lot of uh, left-wing uh, tropes about uh, U.S. foreign policy and how terrible and colonialist and imperialist it is, but also has a, a lot of material you would think wokesters would be re- reflexively repelled by. You know, it's, it says, oh, oh, the U.S. is pursuing this imperialist foreign policy on behalf of the Jews, you know, and, and the U S is a fundamentally corrupt uh, society because it's controlled by the Jews and we need a state religion and everyone needs to convert to Islam, which apparently made no impression on these kids whatsoever. I didn't have this one on my bingo card. I suppose the only good thing that has happened here is for once the people of TikTok have stopped claiming that George W. Bush carried out nine 11 and have now acknowledged that it was Osama bin Laden. Unfortunately, they have appended the word good to that analysis. And these people are stupid. We can talk around this if we want to. But these people are stupid. They don't know anything. They have different ways of evaluating different people, such that if Michael writes that he's opposed to gay marriage, he is a non-person. He is excluded. He is outre and outcast. But that when Osama bin Laden says that homosexuality must be banned in the new caliphate, they skip over it. They gloss over it. There was so much in that letter that should have been appalling to the TikTok brigade, but they seem to ignore. I find that fascinating. I can, in a superficial sense, see why people who are used to the language of decolonization and ethnic studies and oppression would have found a lot to like. It is not usually the case when one hears from academics that one is subjected to as much anti-Semitism as is in that letter, although it can be implied. But the rest of what bin Laden said about the world situation really could have been taken from a course at Oberlin. And if you are primed to see the world in those terms, if you are primed to believe that America is evil, that everything it does domestically and abroad is bad, that the rest of the globe is suffering because of America, that American politics won't change on this front because of money, donors, capitalism, what you will, then maybe you like that letter. But what is so odd about it to me is that the historical context should have outweighed any of those instincts, and it didn't. I mean, this was not something that happened 700 years ago. You're not asking people to 
evaluate power struggles in 13th century Scotland. This happened 22 years ago. It's one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to the United States. The guy in question, Osama bin Laden, was clearly, openly, proudly responsible for it. How do you get to a point at which you read a letter from Osama bin Laden and say, wow, I guess I've had the wool pulled over my eyes. He had a point. What do you lack in general education, general understanding of the world, general context? I mean, I find it alarming. I, I will say, I don't know how many of these people there were, and perhaps that's the saving grace. But we're seeing something similar obtain with the reaction to Hamas, where Hamas's crimes are being overlooked in favor of generalizations, in favor of the great forces of history, oppressor, oppressed, settler, dispossessed, and so on. You see the same willingness to ignore policies that should be facially abhorrent to wokesters. You see LGBT for Palestine t-shirts. Youth for Gaza t-shirts with rainbow flags. Trans for Hamas. I don't understand how that can happen. I understand radical chic, but that's a degree that, that has to imply that there are quite a lot of people there who have been completely and utterly cut off from their heritage, from the world into which they were born, from the country to which they belong, from their parents' universe. and. I hope that we can fix that because those people can often be quite dangerous when they're not grounded in anything concrete. Mm -hmm. So, Maddie, it's, it's not just that they're dumb and misinformed and uninformed. I mean, they really have, have reflect the priorities of our own educational system and the ideological premises that suffuse much of it, which are hostile to our own society and civilization. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of things you could read, uh, debates you could watch that might persuade you of critiques of America or the West. And we, we certainly have plenty of our own critiques of, of American culture and history and foreign policy at National Review, and that's, that's fine. What I don't really understand is, as Charlie points out, in reading this, there should be a lot of things that the this crowd finds immediately triggering to do with minority, sexual minorities, and so on. But the, but the part part that should really just be a wake up call to any morally sane person is the part where, in the letter, the uh, Osama bin Laden says, "If you fail to respond to all of these conditions, then prepare to fight with the Islamic nation." And he goes on to kind of explain what that nation is, and he ends by saying, "The nation of martyrdom." the nation that desires death more than you desire life. And it just reveals itself immediately as a, as a death cult. We're talking about the difference between good and evil, but we're also talking about the difference between life and death. Do you, I mean, the one thing we ought to all have in common is we think life is a good thing and we think it's worth fighting for. These people have no regard for, for human life. They, they just 
have their religious ideology. We can we can attribute the use of social media as to how this message spreads. We can certainly look at as as is right to do the, the anti-Western ideologies um, deeply embedded in our education system. But I think also it, this reveals that moral norms are far more fragile than than we like to think they are. We we have to fight for them. We have to articulate them. We can't afford to take them for granted. And we've seen this with with many things over over the course of, of generations. Take take a, a statement that would have been regarded as just commonsensical a hundred years ago. In fact, every society, every civilization that, that flourished kind of recognized this as, as sensible, which is children are a blessing. Once we discard that moral norm that children are a blessing, um, even in unideal circumstances, children are a blessing, then we slide into, okay, well, we can we can kill them. We can we can kill them in the womb. Men and women are different. An obvious statement and and yet you know now we've we've slipped into thinking that no well they're not they're the same and and sex isn't fixed anyway so we can kind of mutilate ourselves and then take something like america is a force for good in the world islamist fundamentalist terrorism is a force for evil and even these things that we thought were just so obvious they didn't even need saying are obviously not obvious to people who have spent a lot of time with these hostile ideologies with these lies with this culture of death because that's what it really is it's a it's a culture of death so I think um absolutely we should focus our energies on on education think about what we can do to limit the harms of of TikTok but there's also just a kind of moral urgency to this where you know clearly we're we're failing a generation if if this thing that seems so obvious to to normal people is not obvious to them so MBD, one of the ironies here, you look at these kids and their TikTok videos and they, they just exude Westernness, right? There, there's no other civilization or society that would create such people. Yeah, I mean, these kids are, are totally Western. They're not in any way like products that would slide naturally into Islamic civilization, except in this one case, you know, in that... Um, you know, at first I wanted to blame TikTok for grooming these kids, but in fact, it's just they dropped a link, you know, to the Guardian website, uh, and it's it's copy of this letter to America from Osama bin Laden, and you realize reading the letter that it's just filled with garden variety American leftist arc, you know, junk thinking. It is, you know, the you know the product of either Osama bin Laden or just as likely Adam Gadan, the American Taliban teenager who became the you know leading English language apologist for Al Qaeda, just recycling stuff from Noam Chomsky and even Michael Moore, um, you know, just this incredibly shallow analysis that oh the United States is just controlled by corporations and Republicans just do whatever big money wants them to do and the military industrial complex, you know, really like basic stuff. And then you realize that this is exactly what, you know, passes for sophisticated thinking in American high schools, in American prep schools and in American colleges now. So there is this incredible overlap now, you know, if you look at, you know, someone shared 
the first issue of Al-Qaeda's Inspire magazine, which has this essay about the necessity of jihad in light of Al Gore's climate predictions about 2014. <laughs> like, how we're going to save the planet from climate change by bringing down the American beast. You know, it's it's just, like I said, it's, it's a kind of patricidal education that is, is common now. You know, I think Roger Scruton would call it, you know, oikophobia, the, the, the hatred of the home. And, you know, for Adam Gadan, the answer to that riddle of how to oppose America more fully as a leftist was to become an Islamist. Uh, I doubt many of these people will. But yeah, they'll forgive, they'll forgive the Islamists their, um, you know, opinions on homosexuality or whatever. They forgave Obama for the same. And after all, the letter was written in, you know, before it became compulsory in 2015. So I guess they won't hold it against Osama. But um, yeah, this is, it, it's embarrassing. Uh, but the, the embarrassment really belongs to the, the formative institutions in the United States. So Charlie, when ask the question to you, when considering this trend, your attitude is more, ah, you know, the shows we have, have work to do and have to get after it and, and we can and we can turn this thing around if we all put our shoulders to the wheel or total despair? The first one. I don't think that this is indicative. I think the problem in our culture at the moment is that there is a gulf between what the average American thinks of America and on a great number of other issues and what many of our elite institutions think. And insofar as this is reflective of those institutions, and it is because it didn't come from nowhere, it's a problem. But I'm not seeing opinion polls where 80% of Americans are saying, you know what, Osama bin Laden had a point. At that point, I would despair. <laughs> MBD. Uh, it's less than, than total despair. All right. If if you if you'd asked me if you'd asked me in nineteen seventy in the nineteen seventies or even eighties about something like this, I might have said total despair because back then there was this alternative, which was communism, which had this kind of moral engine that appealed to the kind of ghostly Christian sensibilities of Western man, you know, like in, in the Oswald Spengler way of of how every civilization has a kind of anti-religion that that appeals uh, and is destructive of civilization. But, you know, the alternatives to the modern West now are, you know, super racist Han supremacist Chinese or Islamism in the form, you know, which we've seen in ISIS and, you know, I don't know, maybe some kind of weird, you know, Russophone traditionalism that I think is also totally limited in its appeal. And it, you know, so like this just to me looks like a failure we can correct, but it's a, it is a serious one. I mean, we, this, this patricidal impulse in Western culture is, you know, reigning in, in very important institutions. And it's obviously, it affects our will to, fight and survive and defend ourselves. You know, you know, uh, Burnham was right that, you know, this is the ideology of Western suicide. So I think that I'm sort of despairing about the state of education and higher education, especially 
but I have I take some comfort in the knowledge that this death cult mentality doesn't really bear fruit. It, these people are not having a lot of children. The people who are having children are trying to inoculate their children against this type of thing. Unfortunately, they don't, you know, they, we, we need to get more well-raised people into positions of influence, but I think that can be done. I've pretty much given up on higher ed, but I think outside of that can be done. Despair is tempting, but I think is a, a false and, and wrong choice. There's no alternative to putting our shoulder to the wheel. This is still a, a pretty fringy phenomenon, but you just wonder, you know, 30 years from now, if these kids have anything like the same attitudes, the country is will be in a very, very bad place. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at National Review. Dot com your way around our metered paywall your way if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads your way floats your boat don't have to but you can comment on articles and blog posts you can also get invitations to exclusive calls and events with our writers editors and other conservative figures so great deal all around and very very importantly it's a crucial way to support our valuable journalism so if you are not already a member of NR Plus, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National National Review readers as a member. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you took your daughter to see Aladdin on Broadway. Yeah, um, my daughter had her ninth birthday, and last Sunday we took her and one of her good friends down to Broadway and saw the stage production of Aladdin, which was a ton of fun. Uh, It had a bunch of original songs that weren't in the cartoon movie and a great performance by the, you know, the, the actor playing the genie and, you know, just really inventive stagecraft and the kids absolutely loved it and loved the, you know, kind of atmosphere of New York city as it's starting to gear up for the holidays. And it was great. It was also just great to see, um, when you when you watch your kid through other people's eyes, you know, like I saw her, you know, walking through the theater with her very nice Sunday dress on and lots of people kind of smiling at the sight of her and her best friend. It was, you know, really something to remember. That's nice. So, so Maddie, you had the opportunity to spend three and a half hours watching Killers of the Flower Moon yet again, but instead, instead opted for another Scorsese film, Silence. Yeah, so I wanted to revisit Silence. I, I think I watched it not long after it, it came out, possibly on a plane. It was it was some something where I was very distracted. So I rewatched it again last week and thought it was really an excellent movie, although kind of annoying. And then I read Ross Douthat's review and found myself again nodding along, agreeing with everything he said, and 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 felt comforted that I I could make sense of. Makes sense of the movie, but it is a great movie. So I I tried to watch it on a plane once, and I just can't. I'm so squeamish. I just couldn't take the uh, the opening scene with these guys tied to crosses and out in the uh, in the the sea and the tide coming. It was just I I I couldn't take it. I I should I should say by the way, uh, for those who didn't listen to our extra special segment on Killers of the Flower Moon, I think Maddie probably won the day. Um, not because she's right about the movie, but just she used debate tricks 
against me, but I, I thought made excellent and cogent points. So I understand, Maddie, now why you like it. There's no accounting for taste, so I still don't like it. But but I think you you made a an excellent case with that. Charlie, you had a birthday last week and got a popcorn maker and an indoor schmores device. That's right. That's right. No longer do I have to go outside, make a fire before I can enjoy s'mores. I have a little machine that creates heat safely within the house, and we can all toast our marshmallows on that, while the popcorn, the gourmet popcorn, no less, is being prepared in my new popcorn machine. And I was thinking... When you guys were just talking, you all would be better beneficiaries of this in one sense because you are good at discussing movies, and I'm not. And these are movie toys. At least my kids think they are. Every night now, I say, what do you want to do tonight? And they say, uh, movie night with the popcorn machine and the s'mores machine. So I have to come up with a movie that's suitable for them, and my inventory is quite small. But these, these are fun gifts that uh, I'm enjoying. So I went a little while ago and heard Daryl Strawberry, the former Mets, and especially Yankees. Don't forget the the, the Yankees uh, period. <laughs> my my friend Alec Starr give his testimonial. He he really was brought low, personal life destroyed by his addictions, and then found Christ and is now basically a full time preacher. Really, so I would have appreciated a little bit more of a narrative of. His his baseball life and some baseball stories, uh, and then then getting to the conversion. But this this was uh, a testimonial, really all about Jesus, all about Jesus, which you, you can't be too upset about that. He did mention that he really wished back in the day he had paid more attention to Gary Carter and Mookie Wilson, who were the only decent people on the 1986 uh, Mets. But he he didn't. But now he's uh, in a in a much better place, and it was was wonderful. To hear them with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? My pick is Abigail Anthony's column, Please Dox Me, in which she refers to the incredible chutzpah of pro Palestinian or pro Hamas students complaining that they've been doxed because they're when they sign their names to offensive uh, petitions, people noticed. That they did so, uh, and she contrasts this with her own signature on a free speech petition in her own school, and how she was doxed, and says, you know, if you want to call attention to something I sign my name to, go right ahead. That's the whole point. Signing your name, Maddie Kearns. What's your pick? Um, I just like to draw attention to the work of Jimmy Quinn. I have the the great pleasure of of seeing Jimmy in the office uh, a few times a week. And uh, getting to hear what he's writing about before he actually writes it, and I just I, I feel like I learn a lot from him. Um, I wish he'd been able to answer the exit question on uh, <laughs> if he was president, what would he do with with Taiwan? But yeah, he's just really on the ball and uh, really worth following. Charlie, I'm gonna take Jim's post from this morning about Elon Musk. I've been fairly bullish on Elon Musk's business acumen. But he really is a weirdo and worse at the moment. He seems to be flirting with anti-Semitism, agreeing with the strangest claims about 
Jews and the behavior of Jews on X, formerly Twitter. I mean, Jim lays it out as it is. There's no varnish here. That That is, it's a strange, strange development from a strange man who should not be in any way immune from criticism on this purely because he's slightly better on free speech on the internet than were his predecessors. So my pick is a Haley Strack post. She's one of our young writers who is really absolutely killing it. And this is a post, trans accepting Miss Universe pageant files for bankruptcy, pointing out that it might not be totally coincidental that a beauty pageant that features uh, men is not doing so well. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Tommy John and Maiden. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.